All right, everybody. Welcome to the Situation Room. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're in the green room for Disrupt TV. Very happy to have you here. We have our special co-host and also panelist here as well. Uh, we've got our amazing uh, producer, L, and we'll introduce Dr. David Bray first. So, David, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about today? Coming to you live from D.C., although not in the background behind me, but uh, we're going to do, uh, this is the national security episode of Disruptive uh, with both Kirsten and Trent. Uh, we've all served in various capacities, so everything from counter drones to counter ransomware to AI. Wow, let's talk about synthetic identities. Just kidding. All right, Trent, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about today? Uh, national security coming in from just outside Washington, D.C. Uh, going to be talking about uh, counter ransomware, going to be talking about the uh, probably the emerging technology threats that we're going to look over the horizon, probably what we're going to see in 24 and beyond, may get into a little counterterrorism, a little nation state and uh, space Ooh. and where we see things going there. Are you sure this isn't the things I learned at Black Cap but can't talk about episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, Trent does have secret lab on the back of his chair. So Are you the ones that hacked the sphere? I heard it was hacked, but then I no, they did hack. Uh, Hackysat 4 with this. Uh, last uh, blackout, which is amazing. They did it with SpaceX. Um, it, it's really impressive, really impressive, Very but impressive. great example of what we'll talk about. Kirsten, where are you coming in from? What are we talking Hello, about? Coming in from DC. Oh my God, here we go. The DC mafia is here. I know, we can't escape it. Yeah. <laughs> We're just in a blast radius, that's all. <laughs> Very, very good. So, cool. Yeah, I, I think what we're going to do with this episode, just as people are watching, is we're going to put you all in together. We'll weave in the questions and uh, we'll do this for like 40, 45 minutes. But yeah, with that, I guess the, we can kick off the show. Are you, L? All right, here we go. Three, two, Welcome to Disrupt TV. We're on episode number 334, also known as the National Security episode. <laughs> but we're going to talk more than that. We're going to talk about where things are headed. I'm here with my guest co-host, Dr. David Bray. As many of you know, I'll do his introduction first, and then I'll go to our other two guests, uh, Kirsten Fontenrose and, of course, our friend Trent Tayama. So we're going to hit both of them. And But more importantly, if everybody knows Dr. David Bray. He's a BT-150 alum but also a distinguished fellow with the Stimson Center, as well as a non-residential distinguished fellow with the business executives of national security. He's also a principal at Lead Do Adapt Ventures and has served in a variety of leadership roles in turbulent environments, including bioterrorism preparedness and response from 2000 to 2005. He was ahead of his time and executive director for a bipartisan national commission on R&D, providing nonpartisan leadership 
as a federal agency senior executive working with the U.S. Navy and Marines on improving organizational adaptability and the U.S. Special Ops uh, J5 Directorate on the challenges of countering disinformation online. What that never happens? What are you talking about? And of course, the on the internet. Speak. Exactly, it's all trustworthy. Yeah, it's you know AI is great. It's going to solve everything. There's no such thing as exponential misinformation, disinformation. But as we know, Dr. David Bray is really, really smart. And of course, he was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. And of course, he's one of our BT150 folks. And he served as President, Chief Strategy Officer, and Strategic Advisory roles for twelve different startups. So. That's Dr. David Bray. So welcome to the show and welcome for being my co-host today. Thanks for having me, Ray. I mean, with that introduction, I feel like I should just, uh, <laughs> I don't know how I'm ever going to like meet those expectations, but it's obviously great to be here with you. And thank you for everything you do, uh, both as a champion of positive change agents and Constellation. And I'm really excited to hear from both uh, Kirsten and Trent today because they have a wealth of expertise uh, that to bring to the conversation. Well, let's welcome Kirsten on board. Kirsten is the president of Red Six International, our six I, I love those acronyms, and advisory firm providing U.S. government approved technical expertise to partner nations on defeating drones. I need to talk to you about my neighbors. Kirsten has over 20 years of experience working with the national security apparatus of nations in the Middle East and Africa from positions within the U.S. DOD, uh, Department of State, White House, private industry, and nonprofit sector, and her most recent government service was as Senior Director for Gulf Affairs at the National Security Council. Sounds like a really easy position, just hang out. No, just kidding, that's not true. It's a very benign, calm region of the world. Yeah, there's nothing there, it's all automated. Uh, prior to joining R6I, uh, Kirsten was Director of the Scowcroft Middle East Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C., where she still remains as a non-resident senior fellow. I think I was one once, I'll have to go look. Um, so, but hey, thank you for being on the show. You're definitely quoted a lot in print and broadcast on anything related to the Middle East. So welcome to the show, Kirsten. Thanks so much, happy to be here. And of course, Trent. So Trent is the founder and president of CSG Strategies. He was once an FBI special agent, SES retired. I don't know what that means, but is the founding principal for CSG Strategies. Uh, and his call sign is Gibraltar. So he advises governments and companies on integrity and counter threat, specializing national security, cybersecurity, infrastructure protection, blockchain, space, and policy. He's also experienced as a CISO, CSO, CTO, CRO, and actively advises boards of directors and C-suites on the intersection of technology, policy, regulation, and security. Um, so he's also a council member uh, for the Loomis Council at the Stimson Center and a doctoral candidate in cybersecurity at Marymount. Uh, university. But more importantly, if you're talking security, talking threat management, if it's in any industry from biotech, pharma, finance, defense, he's the guy to talk to. So, hey, thank you for joining the show. And more importantly, thank you for being here. Yes. Thank you. Between thank you. Trent and Kirsten, you probably have 35, 40 plus years of uh, national security expertise combined. So uh, this is definitely the brain trust you've assembled, right? Oh, no, no, no. This is the brain stuff you've assembled. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think, and, and I guess, you know, maybe sort of as an opening, because I mean, a lot of people, there's Hollywood, but then there's reality. So maybe Kirsten and then Trent. I'd be interested if you both say, 
what's it like having to like work with the national security council? I mean, be on the national security council and how do you deal with the difficult conversations when you have to say, I know you really want to do X, but all indicators are you really should do Y. So Kirsten, what's it like and how do you handle those difficult conversations? Yeah. And, and hun, I, I'm going to be away for three days again. I can't tell you where, like, how do you do that? <laughs> oh, she, she just, her, her phone just doesn't answer. She just, she picks up when she gets back. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I still don't have my phone make any noises because, you know, career spent in a skiff every time your phone beeps, you're like, what the hell is that? I've heard that joke that's um, the, working at the NSC is like a military deployment with a commute. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's well, true. <laughs> I think and the you have to turn it off at the end of the day. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you can't. There's no end of the day. Yeah. You know, aside from like the sleep deprivation and complete lack of personal life, um, you have to balance the time you're spending on the daily fires, especially in a place as quiet as the Middle East, with the time you're spent you know, you spend driving the implementation of the policies you're directing. So it's this constant, how much of today can I spend on whatever X wacko leader did versus what we're trying to achieve in the next four years. And it's really easy for world events to derail the long-term goals. So you've got to keep a little flexibility in your goals in case those world events are game changers or zeitgeist shockers or something like that. But uh, in terms of the stress, I think it's super stressful, but can also be really energizing. You know, you're not going on adrenaline the entire time because you really do feel like you're doing something that matters and you're constantly learning new things. I think any department and agency knows about 20% of what the government is doing until you get to the NSC and then you see the whole picture and your goal, your job becomes creating a common operating picture that everybody can get behind and drive. And um, the, the primary responsibilities of the NSC are really only achievable if the rest of the government's on board. So that's, the, that's its function. And uh, that's the reason it's so hard to get people to have those difficult conversations to come together, especially when you have place times when either departments and agencies don't agree with each other or where they are opposed to the actual goals of an administration. Then it becomes really hard. But, you know, I was working under the Scowcroft model where we were consensus builders and it was our job to make sure that we both brought in the wisdom from the departments and agencies and kind of use Socratic method to lead them to where we wanted them to go. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, the Skrokov method is great. He's, he was definitely a bridge builder, right? Trying to find the commonalities uh, that come into place. And when you're in a place like the GCC, it's, there's a, not a lot of commonality, right? No, so how do you build those types of bridges, right? How do you get people to work together? Like, I think the, the, the main way to do it is to let them see how whatever you're going for is in their interest. If you try to push up against sort of embedded beliefs or things that you know they are, um, they're really hard set on, you're not going to win. So you have to um, make them see why where you're trying to take them or where you're trying to go with them is something, one, you're in, as invested in as you expect them to be, and two, why it supports the goals they have. And that's not hard if you just do your homework, because most countries have their own publicly published strategies on fill in the blank. And in the terms of the Middle East, they all have vision statements. So as long as you're supporting their vision statements with what you're asking them to do with you, um, it's it's not that hard to get them on board. It's when other world events and other world players start to get in the way that it gets, it gets really interesting. So you got the foundational sets in place by having things written down that they can always refer back to that doesn't oh, waver. Yeah. And Trent, you did the same thing. You were actually a special agent uh, for the... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, and uh, a supervisory special agent. So he had he had both the badge, but then he had to actually lead other people with badges. So yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, when when I was there, I was um, I was the first. So I was in the office of cybersecurity policy as one of the directors in the National Security Council. And I was the first 
FBI agent that they put back into NSC. There's only actually five of us in the entire NSC that we did across the entire NSC. Which is, so this was new position. They're building up the directorate. The directorate was rather new, and then trying to figure out how it works. Um, and it was it was a great adventure. I'll tell you, it's amazing people. I was so impressed with the quality and depth of everybody that was assigned there. But when you're assigned there, the the big difference that I saw that I learned the first time is that you're 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 seconded or seconded to the White House. So you're actually now part of the presidential agency. You may your paycheck may be coming from, like in my case, the FBI, Department of Justice, but I work for the President of the United States. And yep. so my job was to was especially for an agent that you're, you're constantly walking the line because you're there representing the interests of, of the NSC and the president, but there are all these asks from your home agency, hey, what's going on? Or the other way around, they're asking what's going on with this investigation. And I'll tell you, to the credit of the people I worked up in uh, what we go pound legal in our legal department at NSC were wonderful because, you know, my, my particular, um, uh-oh. Uh, oh, no. Areas oh, that I covered were incident response, justice, defense. Oh, sorry. Uh, the areas that I covered were intelligence, defense, justice, and incident response. And so anything that was breaking related to cyber, I was you know, having to, to give context and brief up and then manage with all the different departments and agencies. But I spent most of my time up in legal, just making sure that we were, we we're tracking the right way. So in the beginning, like Kirsten said, it was like when I got there, we got orientation. You know, the first thing they said, I remember getting briefed in, was, you know, Saturday and Sunday are just two days before Monday. And this is a sprint, not a marathon. And so, I, you know, I live there. It's like that deployment. It would have been easier actually to be on, on staff if we were deployed because I was going home every night. But, I, I, you know, I'd show up every morning about 6 a.m. I'd go home at 10, basically, as they're on the weekends. You're getting called in around the clock. And it was just it, one of the best experiences of my life, but it was just, it's, it's not stop. And you have no and life outside of that so life. Much, right? It is your life. You know? yeah. it is. So, you know, like, you know, some of the things that went off while I was there was like, you know, it was the, um, you know, insider threat issues that went off. It was, you know, all these other things that you're dealing with cyber. And what, for me specifically, every morning um, I, I got the presidential daily brief. So what I had to do for my, my bosses is read through the PDB and then anything that had technology or cyber, give them context. Well, I'm an FBI agent, but now we're getting into other departments and agencies. And it's like, uh, okay, I got 45 minutes to give comment context on this and, you know, trying to make it work related to a new project, but it, it you know, and then in the evening we do the alpha brief. So it was a great experience. Uh, great people learned a lot. So, so Kirsten, you, you probably also had to do the PDB. So when is the PDB given and how do different presidents respond to it? Maybe. Uh, well, it's, it's funny that the PDB is given, you know, early in the morning um, and some presidents don't take it. Some presidents take it in depth. Some presidents take it in sound bites and the folks delivering it really have to customize how they're going to deliver that um, to whoever is in the Oval Office. And then the PDB comes to those of us who are in um, senior director roles before it goes to the president. So we have a chance to see what he's likely gonna like come yelling down the halls about later on or, or what have you. Um, and sometimes that's also contentious. There may be something that the intelligence community is teeing up that we don't think 
should be on the president's desk. Uh, and that winds up then being kind of a food fight between departments and agencies, which is one of the things that goes on behind the scenes that people don't often see. Um, so the PDB is not is not it's not only how the president receives information. It also is going to drive what he's thinking, how he's thinking or she's thinking and what their actions are going to be, and what their priorities are going to be. And so there's a lot of power in who selects what goes into the PDB, which is why the NSC is often looped in right before but it's only right before so it can be uh, it could it could be used as a political lever if it is abused um but but presidents do use it to feed what their decision making is going to be and how they're going to task the um their cabinet this is actually interesting i'm not i'm not from the uh, the, the area or an expert here but so does the odni and the, F the fbi and everyone like coordinate somewhere at some point because one goes to justice one goes somewhere else i think right so and then at, when the when the daily briefing comes out, right? Who who says this is the final one that goes out? ODNI has the final say. Okay. Um, Trent, you'd be better at whether or not FBI has any has any shot. Oh no, you yeah, yeah we we submit into it as the FBI is one of the intelligence agencies, so they're in there as opposed to a full time intelligence agency. We're also law enforcement, but then we submit up into which makes the final presidential daily brief which comes to the white house and then goes forward so there's like our intelligence division is uh and exec sec is dealing with theirs to get work that out every day and what they're going to do it's an entire process and, and trent you you actually what you, you had something that was wonderful there you talked about how you're both a law enforcement organization and intelligence and those are separated for for some reasons within the but you know you lived how fbi made the pivot from being primarily law enforcement to having an intelligence component including standing up uh, the Joint Cyber Task Force. So maybe in real brief, can you tell us a little bit like what was it like given that so much of FBI culture rewards law enforcement and intelligence was something fairly new after 9-11 that had to be sort of brought in? Yeah, that, that was, so prior to 9-11, you know, the, the criminal division in law enforcement was the, the biggest, I think, uh, biggest division in the FBI. And then after the attacks on 9-11, the FBI pivoted uh -oh. And, you know, full on uh, global war on terrorism, counterterrorism division. But then did I lock up. You're back. You're After 9-11, <laughs> we're back. After 9-11, we, um, you know, the focus is on counterterrorism and then pivoting more with the intelligence community. We've always been involved, um, counterintelligence, uh, a smaller counterterrorism section, international security division that was dealing with it. But now all the, the focus is going that way. So at the same time, when cyber was growing up, um, I was going from the National Infrastructure Protection Center into the cyber division and actually realizing to address the the, the state-sponsored threat and the cyber terrorist, terrorist threat using cyber uh, capabilities. We ended up uh, launching in 2007, stood up the National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force. It was a task force which came on the heels of uh, Bush-Cheney administration through the Comprehensive National Cyber Investigation uh, Comprehensive National Cyber Initiative. And we uh, started with, I started with four agents and a few anchor agencies, uh, US Air Force, Navy, uh, some intelligence community partners, and we grew it. And one of the, one of the interesting models about the NCIJTF is that we, we actually stood up a concept of, uh, in the community, you say, release to a particular. So what we had is RHEL, NCIJTF. So an agency would release data into the NCIJTF, but it couldn't come back out without the express 
authorization of the originating agency. So they're bringing their most sensitive information on cyber threats, terrorism, counterintelligence, bring it in, and we would all start working these cases together. And then from that, we stood up what were called threat for focus cells to go after the, the bad guy. And then, you know, what, what went over, like, after 18 months, we were up to about 18 agencies. Now, the thing to bear in mind is the NCIJTF, uh, this was a coalition of the willing. We didn't have any legislation. Everybody, and the, the thing that made it so successful is we didn't have any new legislation. So as everybody's bringing their own authorities, Title 10, Title 18, Title 50, um, and you're bringing it in to figure out who the bad guy is and how you're going to track them down and then making those decisions. Today, wow. uh, I think they're up to 30 agencies. Wow. And so it handles everything. The design is it's supposed to handle everything from a criminal activity to intelligence, to counterintelligence, terrorism in there too, to figure out what the threat is and uh, give context to action to be taken. You know, that one team, one dream, 30 agencies. I have no clue how anyone coordinates anything like that, but I'm going to point a question to David here. Okay. Neither, well, you probably can neither confirm nor deny certain things you've done uh, in the national security space, but I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> what trends and activities do you think? Um, I mean, let's take, let's take the holistic picture, right? You tend to take a 30,000 know, foot view, right? What are the, where's that intersection between these threats, business, geopolitics, tech, right, and national security, like what, what keeps you up at night? So, well, so I'm an optimist at heart, but what does keep me on my keep me on my toes is businesses are now targets more than ever. They've, they've been oh, yeah. for a while. I mean, Trent's seen in the cyber domain. I'm sure Kirsten has seen it also in her work, especially involving the Middle East. But businesses need to recognize that as technologies have gotten democratized, it's also made it so that essentially businesses are fair game. And in fact, just in the last week or two, um, you saw that there was actually was a release that came out from the Office Director of National Intelligence and the FBI saying that U.S. space companies are being targeted by some pretty sophisticated actors. And it's not just to gather intelligence. This is actually to disrupt them, to demoralize them, to create situations where their C-suite is maybe embarrassed or blackmailed. And so... Um, you know, it, it's sort of like a, if I could borrow from the, the phrase attributed Trotsky, you may not care about geopolitics, but geopolitics cares about you. Um, mm -hmm. Companies are increasingly going to experience mysterious, odd, weird events involving their personnel, involving their cyber infrastructure. And they need to recognize that some of these players have some pretty sophisticated tools. And it's not just the big ones, because, again, with the democratization of technology, small countries can do things that only the CIA and the KGB could do 40 years ago. And so if you haven't thought about what you're doing regarding not just security writ large, but just resilience plus security writ large, and that can be cyber, that can be physical, that can be being aware of geopolitical threats, because again, a country may want to take you off the playing field because you're competing with a, com a company they have. They may want to take you off the battlefield because they see you as vital to the US and so they want to embarrass or blackmail or create disinformation. Um, and so for me, what keeps me up at night is Companies have enough to worry about already, and now they've got this. And, and I often tell people, you know, you don't really expect um, a company to go out and buy a surface-to-air missile uh, to defend against what a nation state might do to them. But we're kind of expecting them to do that in cyberspace, as well as disinformation. And increasingly, you're seeing disinformation now with AI, with bots. I mean, I've had a disinformation attack that happened to me in 2017. But increasingly, companies can do everything right 
But if a disinformation campaign targets them, it can get halfway around the world before they even have a chance to respond. It's time to get into the crisis comms business. Just kidding. Um, well, you know, it's, well, I was going to actually ask you a question for Kirsten because during your watch, Kirsten, you saw the Middle East. I mean, I think people haven't really realized what the Abraham Accords, like UAE and Israel are now working together. And if you had gone back in time to 2010 and told people that was going to happen, they probably would have said, you're Nobody would have believed it. Nobody so would have tell us a little bit about that trajectory in terms of what you saw. Um, we saw a lot behind the scenes before we saw the Accords. And I'm very convinced that the Accords happened not only because of a place and time, but also because of personalities. I mean, people who don't sit in the, you know, in the quagmire of government work often forget that personalities are really critical in a lot of this. How enabling, how trustworthy, you know, partners find the people that they're there, who are their interlocutors on the U.S. side is critical. And we had people on the U.S. side that both Israel and the UAE, separate people, thought they could really trust and really understood their equities. And that's why they were willing then to come to the forefront with it. They'd been talking to each other. They'd been working together for quite some time because both saw that in terms of trade and in terms of technology, it was almost inevitable. I mean, they were going to hold themselves back by not partnering with each other. And we've seen, for instance, we've seen intelligence sharing relationships between Every country in the Middle East and Israel, except for Kuwait, I think for some time, cut her a little. Um, so behind the scenes, a lot of this has been happening. And, uh, and it just got to the point where the country said, all right, this is, this is, we are now serving our disinterests more than our interests by yep. keeping this, uh, this old pathology alive. Hmm. So when it, when it happened, it was only a surprise to folks who weren't tracking where both countries and both sets of interests in the region were headed. So you've got vision plans in the Arab world that are centered on creating jobs, technologies, creating um, resilience for their economies in a post-oil world. And you've got Israel, which is centered on countering the threat from Iran, which their Arab neighbors feel equally, and on um, sharing technologies and getting investment into their specifically defense and security firms, R&D firms. So it was a really a partnership that was in, you know, they were going to collide happily in some way. If you make it public, then you can get something for it. And so that's why they decided to make it public um, and try to get on the UAE side something for the Palestinian cause out of it. And on the Israel side, something in terms of acknowledgement around the rest of the Muslim world for their validation as a partner from it. So really, it really was a win-win. What we'll see is how much the people on the ground are served by this, because we're seeing both, both sides of the Abraham Accords say, we love this, we want this to continue, but we haven't, except for the UAE, all the other countries that are either normalized or considering it are saying, what do my people get? And the people are saying, we're seeing this and we see the security relationship, but we don't see how this has created jobs for us or um, given our kids more schools, this kind of thing. Uh, there, there are many, many ways that the parallel conversations are happening, especially in terms of things like people to people and yeah. um, tolerance among religions and exchanges among students, all the, all the touchy-feely, warm, fuzzy stuff that makes these things last. They are moving, but can they move fast enough? Um, because right now, especially while you have an Israeli government that's making making this messaging really difficult by their own kind policy. Of, kind of bumpy at the moment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so that means that all the good work that's happening from the Accords conversations is up against that. And then you have, of course, the you know Palestinians acting similar in similar ways, um, in ways that are unpredictable. Their leadership is unknown for the, for the medium term. What is that gonna mean? So you have other, you have countries that may be considering normalizing saying, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna wait and see. Saudi Arabia is kind of playing this beautifully. They're talking about integration more than normalization. It's not that they use that term instead. And they're asking for quite a few things from the US 
for it, as well as from Israel, which frankly, I think Saudi's playing this pretty well. They're kind of in a no loss scenario where either they get what they're asking for because the U.S. makes it happen or they don't. But they can say we really tried. It wasn't because of us that this failed. Or they switch sides to the Chinese, which it looks like they're heading in that direction, too. As well, that, yeah, that's the nuclear conversation. Exactly. They want us as a partner. We'd love to do some sort of, you know, a Ramco like structure in nuclear where we're the partner and also have a little bit of oversight. But Congress has to approve it. And so if you're Saudi Arabia, you're saying, well, this is a win win. China's cheaper. France doesn't have the, the record recently. South Korea's caught up in potential sanctions issues with U.S. components as a part of their system. No one wants us to operate with Russia because of sanctions. So China's the only option comes in way cheaper. The U.S. doesn't want us to do it. But if the U.S. can't get it through their own Congress to allow this Aramco-like structure to happen, then they've forced us to well, operate we in China. Election. we got to figure out nothing happens until the election cycle. Plus, it's our Westinghouse technology anyways. Come on. I'm That's what's in the South Korea <laughs> bid, which is the problem, right? Because Westinghouse is saying, hey, that belongs to us, which means you're subjected yep. to U.S. congressional restrictions on the export of that technology. Otherwise, the South Korea would probably be the bid we'd get behind. It'd probably be the one we go behind. But hey, speaking about that, I mean, the big issue in terms of security and physical security in the Middle East is drones and drone strikes and drone if stuff. Only we knew and someone that was counter drones. Uh, we knew <laughs> anyone that would do counter drone strategies. Like, we could answer why this. Counter drone, why does that matter? For why, why should people care about counter drones? Right. Uh, you got to care about counter drones. Right. I mean, you know, like we talk about all the time, the future of warfare, conventional warfare is being worked out right now in Ukraine, but the future, we're looking at space, we're looking at unmanned, we're looking at disinformation, we're looking at cyber, and the unmanned space is advancing on the enemy side, much like cyber, um, more than the, um, more than on the defensive side. So we're, you know, the, the trends and trajectory for this field are just taking off exponentially. And the, the defense side is trying to keep up and catch up. So you've got drones that, you know, are as small as your fist and can assassinate or as large as jets, literally as large as jets and go as fast as cruise missiles. And they can bomb you, they can spread toxins on you, they can surveil you, they can, you know, they can just slam into you and make you burst on fire. I mean, they can do anything, right? They can literally do anything. You get any sort of drop mechanism, any sort of camera, there's so many ways to just make something unmanned that the potential for enemies is so attractive. It's just, they're salivating constantly and they're always in these little labs. So that means we have to be too. And the reason a strategy is critical is because otherwise, if you take a system, you need a layered defense against drones. You need things that kind of protect you from the little tiny ones that are surveilling you and the big ones that want to attack you, depending on who you are, whether you're a country or a oh, company. Can I just use an EMP? Why just use an EMP? They'll take it out. Uh, it might you take your can. own systems out. Yeah. <laughs> target beam forming EMP? No, I'm just kidding. But, but yeah. curious on, on that. So can you, can you um, give us a little atmosphere, your perspective, drones and the Russian-Ukrainian conflict going on? And their use of drones, because I think that's changing the entire that's changing the entire use of uh, drone warfare as, as what the Ukrainians have been doing and what it would mean to the rest of the world. It sure is. I mean, you've even seen it um, inspire our own Air Force to set up kind of a, a tinkering unit that's supposed to be working on battlefield based drone warfare and counter drone warfare, saying if the Ukrainians can sit one of the members of my team went over and established their um, drone and counter drone unit at the very beginning when it was made up of all kinds of folks from around the world with no operational security. I mean, it was really 
really a sort of band-aid um, operation. Now it's much more sophisticated. <laughs> um, and Ukraine even produces some pretty good technologies uh, through industry there. Uh, but we're seeing we're seeing this fight between how much can we achieve and then how much can they defend against, and then we will we will respond with something slightly different to what they can't defend against. So we've watched drones get bigger and bigger and bigger, bigger payloads, longer range, more endurance, more speed. And then the U.S. and others send in these uh, enterprise systems, these huge platforms that can take those out of the air. And we see the drones get smaller and smaller. Okay, let's go back to what they can't detect. Let's take it back to smaller drones, smaller payloads. Maybe it means we have to be closer to the front line, which just means we then have to own that airspace as well, because some of the counter drone systems only work if you own the airspace. So it depends on which side of that enemy line you're on as the operating unit, whether or not you can you can even make that happen. We're watching. Um, we watched the Houthis use drones to to pull patriots, to attract patriots, and then follow with cruise missiles once the patriots are firing at drone fragments. We've watched that in the Middle East. So drones can be drones are being used as surveillance to then target other kinds of rockets. Um, so we're watching drones being used in, in Ukraine and all around the world for so many different functions in the battlefield. And we're watching what the limitations are. So Russia has a lot of large drones that they've bragged about. We've seen them in the field, but we've noticed that now they're buying Iranian drones. And Iran is then using Ukraine as a laboratory to test and improve their own drones. And we're watching them roll out uh, improvements pretty quickly. And now we're watching China, which has recently launched an, you know, carbon copy. It's what they're best at, right? Not innovating, but copying. Almost a carbon copy of one of the Shahid models that Iran flies and sells to Russia, which will be even cheaper probably than the Iranian model, which they will very likely sell to Russia or to others saying, look, Ukraine, look at how well they're working for Russia there. You can have them too. And we won't get in trouble with the international. And these community. are the 136 kamikaze drones that you're talking about. Oh yeah, right? yeah, the 136s, the 131s. Iran has several models that um, we can't get this kind of uh, of testing at White Sands, you know, and and Nine Mile. I mean, you, this battlefield is really providing Iran with and and our folks, frankly, with unprecedented levels of um, of testing opportunity to put it in a really cynical way. So is the but next war going to be unmanned? Right. Is this kind of how we're going to see this going forward? Well, you still have to have one. You have to have operators, right? Yeah. And, no, operator. and, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, uh, and not all, you know, even some of the unmanned requires a man at a certain point. The counter systems require someone to say what I'm seeing on the screen of data being provided by my unmanned system. I have to recognize as something that I need to act against. So you still need human expertise. We aren't at the level where um, where all of that has been replaced yet. Um, yeah. And of course, you'll still need you still need special operations kinds of, kinds of tactics. A whole separate conversation. But no, the entire battle can't be unmanned at this point. And Trent, I mean, until the rise of the machines, and then. Well, I was going to actually ask you, Trent. I mean, it's only a matter of time before these start hitting. You know, what happens when gangs and cartels start using? Well, they are. No cartels already use it. Yeah, they they're already it. using it. So, the, what the, put on your law enforcement hat, and how do you counter that? Yeah, so that's a big thing. So, I mean, and there's a big discussion. So, domestically, that's a big concern that we're worried about, both on the criminal and counterterrorism side. Uh, uh, narc, uh, uh, narcotic traffickers are using them. Uh, gangs are using them. And what we're expecting is even for, uh, you know, terrorist groups, domestic and foreign, start using it. Because, you know, if you can you can load up an explosive and fly it into a building the, the way we're specifically set up here in the United States, there's there's still a big debate with the FAA, FCC, all these other different groups 
on, you know, under part seven, what's it, part 704, that, you know, uh, registering your drone, line of sight drones, beyond line of sight, you have to go through all this thing, but won't stop the bad guys from using, which are already using it in criminal activities because, you know, it's a lot easier. So if I'm just a, even a street level dealer is using them right now. So I will put my stash, I'm on the corner, I put it in the drone, I fly it up onto a windowsill or somewhere up and I'm just standing there. And then when the, the police come by, Popo comes by and, you know, you're standing there minding your own business and they go, you know, to search you, you don't have any of the, the drugs on you. You just may have some cash. We've already seen that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but going into the fact that, you know, now like what, you know, a lot of the very effective techniques the, the Ukrainians are using are just, you know, dropping, you know, literally dropping uh, mortar on tanks and taking them out. So how much longer before somebody's radicalized, uh, taking that and bringing it into, you know, there's, there's only so much you can protect. And the current changes in the policy right now, most recently, so D justice and DOD are specifically called out under the FAA that can do counter drone activities in the United States. But that the federal government response is a long way from the initial response. So if you're, you're in Washington, D.C. and something's going on, it's a different discussion as if you're in Los Angeles or you're in Chicago or St. Louis. You know, you have a problem, how do you respond to it? Uh, the FBI had a series of issues over the last few years where surveillance drones were flying and buzzing. The field offices, uh, we've had problems with drones flying and doing surveillance in sensitive areas. In fact, um, I was just talking to one of the seniors over at FAA, and there was a drone, somebody flying, a you know, basically a recreational drone um, down by Reagan Airport, and it was high enough that it was getting hit by the airport. They didn't know what it was, but it shut down air traffic at Reagan National until they can figure out. And so, you know, some, some kid with his drone is shutting down all these activities. It's a real concern. I think it's going to change the way we do law enforcement. Now, on the other side, law enforcement is starting to use it more. However, law enforcement is just having uh, discussions with NYPD about this and here, law enforcement here in the D.C. area, uh, getting local communities to understand the positive benefits of drones, you know, because you can actually have them go into buildings ahead of our officers to make sure it's clear and continue, re you know, but people are worried about surveillance, people are, you know, flyover. So there's there's really a conflicted um, dialogue going on. Re re Trent, Kirsten, David, I've never felt so unsafe. Thank you so much. No. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even got started. No, yeah. remember the same thing started. about radio. When about radio ransomware. came out, and then I mean, in nineteen seventies, there was recombinant DNA. The, the reality is, you know, yeah, disruptive. I mean, one so. of the things that I think is worth thinking about, Ray, and 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 and, and maybe if we could get real quick, quick, quick answers from both Trent and Kirsten. At what point in time does Everybody need to almost have their own personal assistant drone that follows them around to sort of serve as their like quote unquote bodyguard, but also to counter other drones. And, and, and unless it sounds far fetched, read the books by Ian M. Banks, sci-fi novels about the culture. I mean, that's what people effectively have. So I'm waiting for a startup to come up with your own personal assist assistant protective drone that follows you where you go. 
or yeah, or just your own counter drone, right? Your own, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. That jams anything that's trying to hack you. That yeah, that blocks anything that's coming. And then it can you. do trend. It can also use. It can use some 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 programming to do the protecting of your digital presence, your physical right. presence. Essentially, it's national security at the level of one, uh, which both sounds both opportunistic and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> Three years. Three years is trend. Three years. <laughs> right. That's it'll, it'll be at CES in 2027. How's that? Lovely, um, lovely. But hey, you and David have been talking about the other threat that people see more uh, in front of them, which is ransomware. Oh yeah, Trent and I were calling it about three years ago, and not too many people were listening. But that's how it goes. But, but think about this with with large language models and other things coming into play. I mean, this ransomware is getting even more sophisticated. It's not just the you know consumer like the grandparents who heard that their son is their grandson is in jail and needs some money, right? Like not that. I mean, we're talking some serious stuff here with patient records and you know devices and other things that get shut down. So in, in 2022, I'll give you an example, 2022, and this is from the Department of Health and Human Services, there was an average of 55 ransomware attacks against healthcare facilities in the United States each month right. that were reported. Think about that, 55 a month. 55. And that means from small to full-on hospitals, you know, and the question, do you pay, do you not pay? Uh, it's a huge problem, especially you start adding LLMs, AI, it's very easy to uh, get tricked, but there are a lot of laws that have come in right now, like Critical Incident Reporting Act, uh, you know, especially if you're in a critical infrastructure, you've got to report, you know, within 24 hours, and if you pay them, you have to report within 72 hours, you know, if you're in a critical infrastructure, and a lot of my clients now with the change in the administration and the, uh, their national cybersecurity policy at the Biden administration, a lot more organizations are in different infrastructures like the 16 than they originally probably were probably in previous administrations. So you may be covered and not know it. Plus, let me add something else onto that. If you're a publicly traded company, um, the SEC two weeks ago just put out guidance that you have to report any significant cyber event, event, not incident, uh, to the SEC, which makes sense. So it's a significant activity report. Um, however, one thing that it came to my attention is that out of the um, colonial, not colonial pipeline, the solar winds intrusion, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the SEC actually served a Wells notice personally on the CISO for that company, which, okay, now you get the Chinese attacking a company they didn't even know it the u.s government has a hard time keeping people out but the wells notice what does that mean what does that mean if you're a CISO? that means that you're personally and financially responsible for any damages that came out of it which is a big game changer so for cisos they have to really be paying attention to this in the ransomware game uh my production i, I see it continue more sophisticated and one pro tip i have is the one of the big things we have right now going on is People calling up, and especially to seniors or communities at risk, posing as a grandchild, a nephew, a cousin, a friend. Hey, I've been abducted. Can you pay money? Um, now we're starting to see, I've already started to see it, where they're starting to use um, AI to grab someone's voice and use that. Yeah. So the pro tip, with your family, Get a password or a passcode or say a way of a way of identifying out a band. Yes, and in fact, 
that before the, you do it, you're familiar with safe word. Just kidding. And, and, and yeah. since Paul's so, not here, really I can say that yeah. that was actually Tell me something. to uh, Salesforce uh, before COVID even. I think it was back in 2018, 2019, I said that the future of uh, CX software would be for any trustworthy business contact, you actually have a code word or some question out of band you can ask them, like, how many yep. kids do you have? Or, or gesture. Or gesture yeah. if you're doing but, video. But yeah. you think right. about it, I mean, they already have the list of your business contacts and everything like that. That's a perfect place because we know. I mean, we know CEOs are getting deep fake audios that sound like they're yep. somebody saying, please wire the following funds. And you know, you before you know it, you've wired the funds and things have lost the building. One question, both actually I'd be interested in your thoughts too, Ray. Ray, Trent, and Kirsten. Are we winning relative to the amount of money we have increased and spent on cybersecurity, or is it that we need something fundamentally different in the sense that, you know, it, it seems like we're treating the disease, but it's an ongoing treatment. And we have to spend more and more. We haven't actually, you know, I, I tell people it's only asymmetric warfare if we let it be asymmetric warfare. And I feel like we're letting asymmetric advantages to the attackers continue to persist when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, 30 seconds each. Go. <laughs> Trent? Oh, me? Uh, because of the changes in a lot of the policy, a lot of the regulation, more companies are now paying attention to it, and it's real because it's actually tied to their business, not add-on. So, yes, that's the win. However, we will never solve it until we solve the identity. So until you have – you can't have zero trust if you don't have confirmed identity. Everything else, you're just kind of catching holes in the day. Kirsten? I'd say that since the uh, U.S. economy is our strength around the world, protecting it is a critical national security interest. So, But we are not the economy as the government. So more private-public partnership, I know we're doing a lot to try to work that out, but we're not good at that yet. We haven't really gotten to a point in any field where we've institutionalized that in a way that really works. The U.S. government doesn't trust and doesn't innovate um, in a way that is keeping with how the private sector wants to do these things. And I don't think we've done a good enough job of reading in the private sector on the threat. So we need to share more on the Intel threat side and then expect more and draw more out from the private sector on their own responsibility about protecting themselves since the U.S. government can't do it all. We can't spend that much. Yeah. Let, let, let me follow up just on that real quick, Rick. We, we've been doing that since the Clinton administration. That's the whole idea of public-private started under the Clinton administration, and we, we still haven't solved it. Which is, no, not at all. Yeah. No, the and, and I also are... think it's probably a matter of time when small businesses and startups might have the option to purchase protective security from somebody else. Because you think about it, that a poor, I mean, a startup, you're focused on just trying to get started. A small business, same thing. And so if a nation state with their advanced persistent threat decides to take you out because that IP is valuable or they just want to take you off the table... I, again, I think it's it's like it's asking for a small business to purchase a surface-to-air missile to protect themselves against a, a na another nation. There's some lopsidedness here. And the question, though, is what does that look like and what can be a trustworthy service um, that they could actually have a subscription to or protection from? I mean, the basic function of government is really uh, keeping your citizens safe, and that's physical and electronic and digital threats, right? So I think the question should be how come we're not going after these folks harder and what why are we not... Why are we not rooting this problem out? Why have we let it go and fester for this long? Is it impossible? I mean, that's the question. It, 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 you, well, the thing is, you're going. You're, these people are in other countries, and so it's the as Trent knows, there's probably plenty of people that the FBI would like to get that are currently in countries that are not going. There, if anything, they're not going to extradite them to Trent. They're probably actually celebrating within their country what these people do. 
they are they're celebrated because they're 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 going after the big guy and and they're taking cuts off of them and that's fine I, i'm happy to use all elements of governmental power against the <laughs> and we have private uh, i'm in rage camp on this one there's a drone for that no no but we have private contractors that can Definitely. serve missions that we can't serve uh, i mean all those things should be used and you know we also have inside threats we have inside jobs that's also that we haven't actually rooted out uh, this happened during COVID. i think we all were in different kind of conversations at different levels where you know people inside large corporations back to what we started with were being threatened by their own employees were being threatened by relative by, by you know conditions where relatives were at risk or individuals were at risk that were related to them. So, I mean, so no, I totally agree. But in, in, in all fairness, I, I do need to give a shout out to uh, my colleagues at, at the cybersecurity directorate now the administration and the office of national cyber director with the counter ransomware initiative and stuff they've done. And the the worldwide, I think they're up to 130 nations that have signed on to this. So bringing that coalition to go after it, there's been a lot of work, but I'm with you, Ray. I'd like to see more. You know, the only way you're going to stop the cyber attacks is you make it personal. It's yeah, more, really you know, there's, a there's a cost, whether yeah. it's kinetic or something else. Financial. Or they don't know for sure yeah. if what they walked off with was actually usable. It's the Willie Sutton rule. The money's here. I mean, people are going to keep going. You rob banks oh, yeah. because that's the money. money. Right. This is where it is. The business community right. is going to have to start watching the insurance sector because it, at some point, insurance premiums for protecting yourself are going to make it. Um, un, it, it's, it's going to make it too expensive for some companies to operate, but it's also going to be an incentive for them to, to seek out that kind of private help you're talking about. It will. Yeah, but right. on that, so Kirsten, on that real quick, sir, the interesting thing about from the cyber industry, uh, cyber insurance industry, and I worked in there for a little bit, if you read a lot of the policies, it doesn't pay up or indemnify for acts of war. Right. And so, or foreign aggressors. So if you've got a, nation state doing this causing all this is that something they are going to pay or not going to pay ask Maersk how they're it, feeling right now about the question was it an act of war as to what happened to Maersk when they had their cyber event yes exactly yeah exactly wow. so yep. colonial Perfect. pipeline but hey last Remember? question on you David AI and trust yes uh, this is a hot issue um, you've been doing a lot of public and private keynotes I think you did something for the Air Force Space Force some yes. important institutions and three-letter acronym places. Uh, what should we be thinking about? What should C-suite companies be thinking about in terms of AI and trust? Do those things really go hand in hand and will we need both in order to move forward? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm really, one of, one of the things that I, that I and I celebrate uh, everything that both Tris, Tris, Trent and Kirsten have been saying is it could very well be that first and foremost, the Turing test, if you remember the Turing test is a question about yep, yep. whether or not we can actually, you know, a machine can fool itself, can fool you that it's human. And so, you know, is the Turing test a wrong question we should be asking? Because it's, it's basically saying, can a machine fool us into thinking it's human? What I really wish that we'd actually think about as businesses, as companies, as organizations, is actually not that the machine can fool us into thinking they're human, but instead, how can it actually amplify the strengths as individuals and as companies of humans? But similarly, we all know we have weaknesses too. There are things we're either not good at, there may be blind spots, there may be biases. And so I really wish that instead of we, we think of artificial intelligence as really being AI as artificial, it's really about augmenting the intelligence of individuals and groups. And I worry right now with all the fear and uncertainty and doubt that says that either, you know, notice, by the way, in this show, at no point do we talk about AI taking over the world or, or killing us. They're, they're, the drones will take care of that. But already or, happened. Yeah, okay. exactly. But we're, I raise we're just replicas of who we were before. So you're, you're okay. You know, we have, I mean, it seems like we're at this moment 
where if we put aside those who's you know are either incentivized to sell fear or incentivized to tell us it's the best thing since sliced bread and actually say what's the real there there yeah. with ai i think it could actually be that it could actually enable better decision making especially in an era of these challenges and threats but also we're just drowning in data i mean companies are drowning in data the government's drowning in data organizations are drowning in data and so I would love to see more companies come out and say, we can make you better. And it's not just you as a person that we can make your teams better. We can make your organizations better and we can actually show those outcomes. And that's what AI is. The other thing I'd also want to do real quick is give a shout out to uh, JP Singh and George Mason University. Uh, they just came out with a report. We'll make sure you can share it, um, Ray, which actually looked at the national AI strategies of 54 different companies, sorry, countries. And I think that's actually something that's important because right now we hear about what China's doing, we hear what the United States is doing. Sometimes we hear about what Europe's doing, but this points out that there are actually 54 nations out there. And what's interesting is nobody's following what China's doing, but similarly, no one's really following what the US is doing either. And so that's both opportunity and a challenge, because if that's happening, then the question is, what are those other 52 nations doing? And if we think about the future of companies that want to sell to these different countries, are they literally going to have to navigate 54 different laws and policies? Or do we have to start building consensus? And what is U.S.'s role in playing that consensus when it comes to AI strategies? I don't even know. What's that USB stick com uh, compatibility that we have around the world? Yeah, don't plug it in. Don't plug it in. No. <laughs> <laughs> the, the US, no, no, no. What my, my point was really oh, the no. USB we're, we're, took out yeah. all the power outlets, right? At the end of the day, like it doesn't matter what country you go to, you can shove a USB and charge your phone. Right. Like, and it, unlike all the different power arrangements that we have, we have to come to something like that to go. Well, and I think that's actually, and that gets back to your question about AI and trust rate. At the moment, the US is very laissez-faire when it comes to AI. And that's partly because we don't know whether or not it's the best thing since sliced bread or it's going to be the end of us all. And I think it's, it's not going to be either. You go back to radio, 1920s, they thought that radio was going to bring together the nations of the world and everybody was going to be kumbaya. Six years later, they thought AI was going to super empower dictators and it was going to be end of society. And here we are about 100 years later. And as far as I can tell, radio has neither brought about perfect peace nor the end of the world. So we're, we're kind of in that same moment. But we're still but, in the war of the world. And that's but but what I would love is, you know, if, if the U.S. could take a stand and say, we will stand for AI having ways that you can trust it. And I define trust as the willingness to be vulnerable to it. And as a result, I want to see that it's benevolent. I want to see that it's competent and see that it operates with integrity. But think about large language models. Uh, benevolence, I can't determine. Uh, integrity, they'll change their mind if you give them a different prompt. If you say, no, you're wrong, the machines say, okay, I apologize, you're right. So they have no integrity. And competence, these things can't distinguish fact from fiction. So competence mm -hmm. is out the window. So I think there's an opportunity. Doesn't, And that's not the, again, I don't want to bash on large language models. But you also think about decision-making in companies, decision-makings in government, large groups. I mean, there are so many black boxes right now where we can't even get a sense of benevolence, competence, and integrity. That, that's there. I mean, what you heard from Trent. Yeah, but those are values that you perceive. Yeah. Other people would want lying, you know, people that are not benevolent and people are, I mean, you're going to train these models to do whatever they want, right? Oh, hundred percent. But I, I, but I raise that is it could very well be that the things that we yep. want from our society, the things we want from our governments, and you heard from Kirsten and Trent, I mean, once they were inside the National Security Council, there are brilliant, benevolent people that are working their butts off. You know, yep. the, the, the yep. so-called fat yep. cats, they were probably working 16 hours a day, at least six days, if not seven days a week, and only getting paid for eight, you know. And so, they're, they're, you know, it wasn't like they were getting a, fat, a, a huge salary. And so the question, though, is if we do these things behind a curtain and you can't see that benevolence, you can't see yep. that competence, you can't see that integrity, 
it opens up windows for society to get polarized, to get divided. And so I would submit, not only do we need to think about trust in AI, we've got to think about how companies, organizations, and government can develop better trust, given that the world is more 24-7 and immediate. Got it. We'll hear with Kirsten Fontenrose. Thank you so much. Uh, Trent Tam, and of course, Dr. David Bray. Thank you for being on the show, and uh, we'll catch you in the green room. So, Thanks for having us, Ray. All right. Thank, thank you very you. much. So coming up next week, uh, what we're going to have is, oops, uh, we're going to have episode number 335. So we're going to bring on Sharon uh, Vindering, uh, founder of uh, Parent Tested, Parent Approved, uh, Laurel Taylor, CEO, founder of Candidly, and of course, Katie Novak, CEO and, and Kristen Rodriguez, PhD, authors of In Support of Students, A Leader's Guide to Equitable MTSS. So. If it's a Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Follow us 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, almost every Friday. And of course, uh, we'll see you at different events. So thanks a lot for listening and take care.